بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد فان احسن الكلام كلام الله وخير الهدى هدى محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم وان شر الامور محدثاتها وكل محدثه بدعه وكل بدعه ضلاله وكل ضلاله في النار so this is our third lesson on this uh, explanation of the hadith qudsi the mighty hadith qudsi ya ibadi inni haramtu dhulm ala nafsi and uh, the explanation is by the Sheikh Allama Rabi' bin Hadi al-Madkhili Hafizahullah Ta'ala. In the previous two lessons, we looked at the first statement in the hadith which relates to dhulm itself. And so we completed that in the first and second lesson. And as a very brief recap, the Sheikh established that when we speak of dhulm, first of all, dhulm is from the greatest of injustices from the greatest of sins and it is darkness upon darkness on yawmul qiyamah and so it is upon a man to fear dhulm committing dhulm and this dhulm falls into three categories there are three categories of dhulm the first of them the sheikh mentioned is the greatest and unforgivable type of dhulm which is that you commit shirk with Allah Azza wa Jal. And this is the greatest dhulm because Allah Azza wa Jal is the one who created you and gave you the faculties of hearing, seeing, feeling, understanding. Then He bestowed upon you tremendous, innumerable favors and bounties that you enjoy the bounties of food and drink and water and clothing and abode and uh, spouses, partners, and so on and so forth. And then after all of this, you either attribute this, you either attribute this to someone other than Allah, so you ascribe these favors to other than Allah, or if you don't, you ascribe them to Allah, then you worship others alongside Him. You make others equal in the worship that should be given only to Him. So this now is the greatest type of dhulm. It is a denial of the fact that Allah Azawajal is the one, the truth, the creator, the provider, the sustainer, the one upon whom all things depend, the one to whom all things turn to. It is a denial of that truth. And that truth is the truth upon which the heavens and the earth are established. So this is a tremendous amount of zulm, and it can never ever be forgiven if a person dies upon this type of oppression. So this was the first type that the Sheikh mentioned, and the second type that the Sheikh mentioned is dhulm that relates to what is between a servant and, and the right of Allah upon him. So in other words, this means in the affairs of obedience and disobedience, you know, sin, and so on and so forth. So a person now, he either neglects his obligations or he falls into that which Allah has prohibited upon him. And everything which Allah prohibits, within it is rectification, within it is justice. And so when a person transgresses, 
against his own soul, then he is committing oppression. He's committing oppression against himself. And so for this, he needs to make tawbah to Allah Azawajal. And Allah Azawajal, he accepts the tawbah of his servants, as we shall see in a later part of the hadith itself. But this is a second type of dhulm. And, and with respect to this dhulm, we are in between two extremes. We neither say that a person is a disbeliever, as is said by the khawarij, who say that this person has lost all of his faith, nor do we say, on the other hand, that this person is complete in his faith, that his sin did not affect his iman at all. Rather, both of these views are incorrect. Rather, there will be from the people who will enter the hellfire and they will eventually be removed from the hellfire, either by way of intercession or by way of the pure mercy of Allah Azza wa Jal. And so this part of our belief, it is a refutation of both of these two groups. That yes, a Muslim who commits sins will enter hellfire and yes, he will be taken out and he will not remain therein forever because he has the foundation of Iman still with him despite his sin. So this is the refutation of the Khawarij and the Murjia. So this was the second type that the Sheikh mentioned and the third type that he mentioned whose discussion we completed in the previous lesson is the oppression that relates to that which is between the servants of Allah Azawajal. So now this is no longer a, a, a private or a personal sin that you commit in which nobody else is harmed. Rather you are only harming yourself. Right? That's the second type. The third type is when you commit dhulm and you transgress against another person with respect to his blood. Or you kill someone. Or his, you, know, his, you harm him in some way or the other. Loss of limb or life or injury. Or with respect to his wealth. So in some aspect of his wealth or his property, uh, you damage his property, you um, steal something from him or you embezzle him or whatever else, cheat him. This is now in relation to wealth. Or in relation to honor. Uh, you slander someone or you backbite someone or you defame someone or you make a false accusation against someone. All of this now is dhulm, oppression against the servants of Allah. And with respect to these things, these things, uh, if a person dies without tawbah, they, they will not be forgiven. And justice for these things will definitely be, definitely be meted out. And as the Sheikh mentioned, that even if it involves a small twig of a miswak, of a, of a tree of, from which we take the miswak, a small twig, then that will be accounted for. And even on Yomul Qiyamah, a person will not proceed, the believers will not proceed to paradise up until they are stopped and there is a retribution that takes place with respect to the oppression that they committed towards each other. So look at this. Look at how Allah Azawajal, He forgives the transgression when a servant commits sins. This is a transgression against you know, the right of Allah. Azawajal. Allah will forgive that. But as it relates to the rights of other people, and it is not sufficient just to seek, make istighfar and make tawbah. You have to return the right of that person. You have to rectify what you put wrong. Otherwise, that, that, you know, that, that, that is not, uh, does not count as a proper uh, tawbah. You have to rectify and put right and return the right or whatever else that you did. So this is how great it is, the, the issue of oppression against other people. So... This is where we, where we finished in the previous two lessons. And we finished on a point about whether Allah is he is it impossible for him to do dhulm? Is it impossible for him to commit dhulm?
Or is it the case that he can commit dhulm if he wants to, but because of his perfection and his justice, then he chooses not to. And we said that it is from our belief, the belief of Ahlul Sunnah, that we say that Allah Azawajal, he, 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 he's absolved from committing uh, oppression. He does not commit oppression because he chooses not to. And this is from his perfection. It wouldn't be perfection if it was impossible, impossible upon Allah Azawajal to commit them. Then how can that be perfection? If something is impossible to begin with, then him not doing it cannot be a perfection. It is only a perfection if Allah Azawajal is able to commit dhulm if he wants to. But he chooses not to do it. Why? Because he is Al-Adal, he is the just, he is the wise, and he is absolved from you know, any type of, of wrong or injustice. So the Shaykh finished with that small uh, but important point of belief. Uh, it is not because of ajas, it is not because of being incapable, but rather it is tanazzuhan, uh, meaning that he... He, it is out of him being free and innocent and absolved of this type of deed. So this now leads us to today's lesson. And this is lesson number three. And we move now to the next part of the hadith. So the first part of dhulm has now been concluded. But the hadith has nine other sections, all of which are tremendous pieces of uh, advice and knowledge for the believer. So the next part of the hadith قال الله تبارك وتعالى في الحديث القدسي يا عبادي كلكم ضال إلا من هديته فاستحدوني أهديكم So in this hadith Allah Azawajal he says O oh my servants all of you are astray all of you are misguided except the one whom I have guided so seek guidance from me and I shall guide you. So, this part of the hadith now, it relates to guidance and seeking guidance from Allah Azawajal. And the Shaykh will discuss this in relation to two affairs. The first is in, rela in relation to the deen, and the second is in relation to the affairs of the dunya. Right? So we seek guidance from Allah Azawajal in the affairs of the deen. And likewise, we ask Allah for guidance and correctness, and you know, even in terms of our worldly affairs, we ask him for rizq. So these two aspects the Shaykh will discuss. So as for the first, there's an issue that comes about, which is, what is the asal, what is the foundation of man in general? What is the principle? Is he born guided? Is he born upon the truth? Is the foundation with respect to man? that he is considered to be upon the truth and upon righteousness and upon truthfulness? Is that, is that the rule? Is that the foundation? Or is it something other than this? This issue was discussed by Shaykh al-Islam Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah ta'ala and Shaykh Rabi has uh, some commentary upon some speech of Shaykh al-Islam and we will mention that here inshallah ta'ala. So in this statement, Shaykh al-Islam Ibn Taymiyyah he says, وَأَمَّا قَوْلُ مَنْ, من يقول as for the saying of the person who says, Al-Asal fil Muslimin al-Adala. Al-Asal fil Muslimin al-Adala. Fahuwa batil. As for the statement of the one who says that the base rule, the basic foundation with respect to Muslims is that they are upon Al-Adala. Al-Adala. Right? 
So the one who says that every Muslim we automatically assume that he is upon adala. Al-adala means that he is someone who is uh, uh, truthful in everything that he says and that he is free of all major sins and that he is upon uh, uh, guid- guidance, actual guidance meaning in terms of the actual path of the sunnah. Right? So is this something that we assume from the beginning? Is that what it is? And so Shaykh al-Islam says, وَأَمَّا قَوْلُ مَنْ يَقُولُ الْأَصْلُ فِي الْمُسْلِمِينَ الْعَدَالَةِ فَهُوَ بَاطِلِ فَهُوَ بَاطِلِ It is false. This is not correct. بَلِ الْأَصْلُ فِي بَنِي آدَمَ الْذُلْمِ وَالْجَهْلِ The foundation of the son of Adam as a whole. So mankind as a whole. The foundation with respect to them. That upon which they were created was الْذُلْمِ Wal-jahl, al-jahl wal-zulm. And the evidence for this, cited by Shaykh al-Islam, Ramakala Ta'ala, as the most exalted said, وَحَمَلَهَا الْإِنسَانِ إِنَّهُ كَانَ ظَلُومًا جَهُولًا This is at the end of Surah Al-Ahzab. Right at the end when Allah mentions how He offered the trust, the amana, to the, to the mountains, and they were scared of uh, taking it on. They were scared of accepting it. But man took it upon himself. As we see, وَحَمَلَهَا الْإِنسَانِ Man undertook it. إِنَّهُ كَانَ ظَلُومًا jahula. Indeed, he is ظَلُوم. He is one whose nature it is to oppress, to transgress the limits. And جَهُول, jahula. He is one who is characterized by ignorance. And these two nouns here that we have, ظلوم and جهول, they are an emphatic form. It is not ظالم and جاهل. It is ظلوم and جهول. And these are emphasized forms. These nouns, they convey a sense of emphasis that this is a trait and a quality rather than an instance which takes place. Rather than a sifa, a description, rather... Uh, sorry, rather than an, an, uh, a fi'l, an, an action which takes place. Rather, it is that which has become a trait. So this is a trait of mankind as a whole. That he is jahil, that he is ignorant, that he is, that he is jahul, and that he is ظلوم. And so he says, Ibn Taymi continues, وَمُجَرَّدْ أَتَّكَلُّمْ بِالشَّهَادَتَيْنِ لَا يُوْجِبُ إِنْتِقَالَ الْإِنسَانِ عَنِ الظُّلْمِ وَالْجَهْلِ إِلَى الْعَدَلِ so he says, so just, by, just because a man, just because he merely expresses the shahadatain, when he says, Ashadu an la ilaha illallah, wa ashadu anna Muhammad Rasulullah, this does not mean now that he has come out of dhulm and jahl and has now entered into al-adala. Right? So just entering into Islam does not confer upon that individual al-adala. Al-adala meaning uprightness, truthfulness, rectitude. So, once we understand this, then, when we look at this hadith, يَا عِبَادِي كُلُّكُمْ ضَالٌ إِلَّا مَنْ هَدَيْتُهُ فَاسْتَحْدُونِي أَهْدِكُمْ O my servants, all of you are misguided, you are astray. Except the one whom I guide. So seek guidance from me and I shall guide you. And Shaykh Rabi' has a nice explanation upon this statement, uh, which is 
first of all, Ibn Taymiyyah mentions that al-adal, al-adal justice, when the fuqaha, when they explain what it means, they say it is when a person is free from major sins and he does not persist upon minor sins. Right? This is what defines someone who is upon al-adal, someone who has adalah. Someone who has someone who is upright and trustworthy and reliable and in whose deen trust can be placed, one who will be known not to lie, one who will be known not to deceive, one who will be known not to be treacherous, and so on and so forth. It is the one who is free of major sin and the one who does not persist in minor sins. And Shaykh Rabi ibn Hadi, he then mentions and comments upon this statement. He says, is the origin with respect to people that they are upon the sunnah? So, so far we've discussed that when you look at any individual from Bani Adam as a whole, do we assume that they have adala? Right? And the answer is no. And even if they say the shahada and enter into Islam, do they have adala automatically? And the answer is no, they do not. Rather, al-adala is what is defined, as we said, freedom of major sins and not persisting in minor sins. And also, so that's, that's in general. And then also there is the aspect of, is a person actually upon the guidance of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam? So do we now assume that every Muslim who expresses the shahada, do we assume now this is a person of the sunnah? Is that the asal? Is that the foundation? And so this is the question that Shaykh Rabi'a, he discusses, and he says that how can the base rule concerning the people that they are upon the sunnah? When we have the rawafid, we have the shia, the rafida, and we have with us the batiniyya. The batiniyya are those people who believe that there are hidden secrets, there, there is a secret knowledge that the common people do not know and it is only for the philosophical elite. And there are certain truths that are other than the truths which have come in the Qur'an and the Sunnah. That that is just for the common people who don't really have intellect and have reason, they are not refined, they are not cultivated. So they are just basic truths such as, you know, believing in Tawheed and sticking to the uh, acts of worship and keeping away from alcohol and prohibitions. That's just for the common people because they're not able and capable of understanding the higher, the real truths. And as for what they have, what they believe, the Ba'atiniya, they say that, you know, they have other higher esoteric truths which only people of intellect and philosophy that they can fathom and understand. So this is the Ba'atiniya. There are people who ascribe to Islam, who ascribe to Islam, and they hold these ideas. And this is present amongst the Rafida. It is present amongst the Alawis, these people who are the, the rulers of Syria. They are Batniya, Alawis. They're upon this, uh, they have these notions. And so amongst the Muslims are those. And likewise, we have amongst us communists or socialists. And we have with us the Hizbiyun, those people who are. Uh, uh, basically operate as political groups, like political parties, like we find amongst the disbelievers, amongst the non-Muslims. They treat Islam as if it is, you know, uh, uh, in a political sphere, that everything is political. And 
the way to establish Islam is only through political means, through revolutions, coups, assassinations, marches, demonstrations, all these methods which have been taken and borrowed from the disbelievers, from the non-Muslims. These are not from Islam. So these types of people, they exist. And so the Sheikh mentions these groups just by way of example. We have the Jahmiya, we have the Qadariya, we have the Mu'tazila, we have the people of Wahdatul Wujud who believe all of existence is Allah Azawajal. We believe we have so many of these uh, factions, parties and groups present. So how can it be the case that we assume that the base foundation for every Muslim is that he's automatically upon the sunnah? This is naivety, this is ignorance, this, is, this cannot be, cannot be uh, correct. It is ignorance of uh, uh, Allah's al-qada al-shari'i and al-qada al-kawni al-qadari. Right? It's ignorance of Allah's legislation as it relates to his sharia because in the sharia Allah has mentioned that the people will go astray and most people are misguided and that there will be differing and splitting. Right? So, and likewise, what we find in the sunnah of the Messenger explaining the splitting of the ummah, the 73 you know, sects, the emergence of the khawarij, the emergence of the qadariyah, and so on and so forth. This is what we've been told from the sharia. And secondly, in terms of Allah's qada, which is qadari and qawni, meaning that which we actually see what Allah has allowed to happen. And so what do we see? We see that in the ummah, there are misguided people, misguided individuals, misguided parties, groups, sects. And Allah has allowed this to happen for a wisdom to distinguish between the one who will stick to the haq and the one who will follow his desires and choose any one of the numerous paths of batil. So from both these angles, we know that it cannot be correct that the asal, the foundation, with respect to a Muslim, especially after the passing of the Messenger of Allah and the Sahaba and the Tabi'een and the occurrence of those things which he prophesied would take place within, within the nation. So the Shaykh continues and he says, how can it be when we have with us every type of sect or group? So how can the base rule be that they are upon the Sunnah? Who said these words? And Ibn Taymiyyah, rahimahullah, he refutes the one who says that the base rule concerning a Muslim is that he is upright and just and honest. He has adala. He says this is false speech. We heard his statement. He said, This is false. Because Allah Azza wa Jal, the Most High, He said regarding mankind, and then He mentions the ayah, So mankind bore it. And so hence the base rule is that he is upon dhulm and jahl, meaning that his entry into Islam does not confer integrity and honesty and justice upon him, as Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah said. So the Shaykh goes on to say, how can the base rule then be that the people in the various places where there is great confusion and where most people are upon other than the sunnah, how can it be the rule that they are upon the sunnah? However, if you know of a person that in general he's coming from a specific area where there are people of the sunnah, where there are people who are upon the way of the salaf, then you can assume, you hold a good opinion, you can have a good opinion that this person is a person of the sunnah. So, for example, we know by way of what we experience and you know that in certain regions, in certain places, in certain cities and townships there are, for example, masajid of the people of the sunnah which are only frequented overwhelmingly by the people of the sunnah. And so you can assume about those such people that they're upon the sunnah, yes. 
we can use these types of factors and parameters. But as a general rule, in light of what we have discussed, then this principle cannot be correct. It cannot be correct to assume that every person, every Muslim you come across, that he has adala and that he is upon the, you know, the actual, actual guidance. So there's a difference between uh, this and between suspecting a Muslim of a sin or a crime. Right? So don't confuse these two things. You can't go up to a Muslim. You, every Muslim, he is innocent. Right? We cannot accuse him of anything. He's innocent. Right? So in terms of lying, false speech, and you know uh, what we know of him, you can't accuse a Muslim of anything. So in that sense, you cannot accuse a Muslim falsely. He is innocent. So that's the base rule in that respect. Don't confuse that with this issue of... What is mankind created upon? He is created upon dhulm and jahl. And secondly, in terms of the sunnah, based upon what we know from Allah's qada wal qadar, and just the, the, the realities, then we cannot assume that a person is upon adala and upon uh, the sunnah. Right? So do not confuse between these various things. These are all separate things. So you come across a Muslim, then you can't accuse him to be a sinful, lying, deceptive, treacherous, follower of desires, who you can't accuse that. You, you assume a Muslim is innocent and free of all of that, unless you know otherwise. Unless there is proof or evidence otherwise. But you come across any Muslim, he's innocent. Right? As it relates to his you know, piety, rectitude, you can't accuse him of anything, unless something manifests. That's one thing. The other thing that we are speaking of is about the straight path of Allah Azawajal, the path that the companions were upon, of uh, Iman, righteous action, the correct sound aqidah, the correct manhaj, then in relation to that, this is what we are discussing here. That it cannot be the base rule that every person is upon guidance. How can it be when we have the rafida, we have the mu'tazila, jahmiyyah, and so on and so forth? It cannot be the case. So the shaykh continues, however, um, as for the whole world uh, becoming a place of great confusion, and you don't know one person from another as to what they are upon, then you should know, you should recognize the person upon the truth. Meaning you should seek out and recognize the person who is upon the truth. And it is for this reason that the Salaf used to say, verily this knowledge is the deen, indeed this knowledge is the deen, so look at whom you take it from. Right? So this is how we understand the situation. That not every person who claims to be something, you know, upon upon something and claims to be upon the way of the Sahaba, is he necessarily upon that way? Because every person, he makes that ascription. Every person says, I'm Ahlul Sunnati wal Jama'ah. But we have a criterion by which we can tell whether that person is truthful or not. So then the Shaykh goes on to mention some other statements similar to that, the statement of Ibn Sirin. Really, the people did not used to ask about the isnad, but when the fitna occurred, then they, you know, the, the, the fitna, meaning the fitna of the killing of Uthman, <coughs> then after that, then, then they used to say, name as your men. Who are the people from, from whom you are narrating? So when the fitna has taken place, and a split has taken place in the ummah, and misguidance has settled in, then it is no longer how it used to be. Now it is we are looking to whom are you taking, from whom are you taking knowledge? 
And what is that person upon? And who is his companionship? And whom does he frequent in terms of you know visitation? And, and so on and so forth. And from that, we separate between the people of the sunnah and the people other than them. So the shaykh says, so we ask Allah that he grants us a new success, and that the sunnah increase. However, statements which are made without any qualification, which are made general and absolute, then it is not desirable for them to be expressed. Like the statement that the asal with respect to mankind is adala. This is false. It is false. And likewise, the asal with respect to a person is that he is upon the clear manifest truth. This is also false, not true. So, as it relates to the hadith Qudsi, Ya ibadi kullukum dal illa man hadaytu fastahduni ahtikum O my servants, all of you are astray except the one whom I guide. So seek guidance from me and I shall guide you. So the shaykh says, meaning ask him for guidance and Allah Azawajal, he will respond to your dua. If you are sincere, and this applies to any, any person, if you are sincere to Allah, and you seek guidance from Him, and you then take, you, you're, you're, you're truthful in your desire, and you pursue that guidance, then it is only Allah Azza wa who is the controller of guidance. And so that's why the Shaykh then goes on uh, to uh, move into a, another area, which is the area of the world, the worldly affairs. So he says that Allah Azza wa all of us are fuqara, we are in need of Allah Azawajal, because we are not in control of any harm, or benefit, or, or death, or life, or resurrecting anything. These traits or these qualities are denied for everything besides Allah Azawajal. As we read in the Quran, aliha, They took others besides Him as deities, so look at this ayah. They took besides him as deities. They took others as besides him as deities. They do not create anything. But they themselves are created. And they control neither harm for themselves, nor benefit. And nor do they control death, and nor life, and nor resurrection. So look and reflect upon this ayah. Look at what it contains. It is in Surah Al-Furqan, Surah 25, verse number 3. Look at how Allah has negated these qualities of Rububiyyah, from the deities which are, wor- which, which are worshipped besides him, indicating thereby the futility of worshipping those deities. So he said, they worship besides him other deities who do not create anything, so they are not able to create, but they themselves are created. So the ability to create from nothing and to put what, what we see Allah has put in place of causes and effects and mechanisms and so on and so forth, all of this from the creation of Allah Azul, they are unable to do this. And nor do they control benefit and harm for themselves, let alone someone, let alone someone else. And nor death and life, and nor are they able to resurrect. All of these five or six qualities, right? this is a rational evidence 
for the futility of worshipping others besides Allah. You take anything besides Allah, whether it be an angel or a human, a jinn, a prophet, any prophet or messenger, and you, any of the created entities, you see that they are unable to create. You see that they are unable independently to control harm and benefit for themselves, independently, outside of the causes and the means which Allah has created. They are unable, they don't have any power over death, nor over life, and nor are they able to resurrect anything. And so this shows the futility of worshipping others besides Allah. But at the same time, what does it show? It shows that all of the affairs are in the hand of Allah Azawajal. And it shows our intense need for Allah Azawajal. And this leads us in fact to the third part of the hadith. Ya ibadi kullukum ja'i' illa man at'amtuhu fasta'imuni ut'imukum. This is the third part of the hadith. It leads into that now. O my servants, all of you are hungry, except the one whom I have fed. So seek your food from me, and I shall feed you. And I shall feed you. So what does this indicate? It shows that Allah is Ar-Razzaq. He is the provider. He is Dhul Quwatil Mateen, the possessor of immense strength. And that he is the one who controls all of these affairs. He, con- he creates, he controls rizq, sustenance, and he controls benefit, he controls harm, he controls death, he controls life, and he controls hidayah, guidance as well. He controls guidance. All of these things belong to Allah Azza wa Guidance we already discussed in the sense of the deen. And here in terms of the dunya, all of these affairs... These are controlled by Allah Azawajal. And so we see that because he has these qualities, he's the one who um, he gives and he withholds and he restricts and he enlargens. Look at all of these qualities. And if you reflect upon what takes place in the creation of Allah Azawajal, you will see that all of these qualities belong to Allah. First of all, he, he gives al-ata'a. Don't you see him giving to the mushrik and to the kafir? Giving them all of the possessions of the dunya? Because they mean nothing. They, 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 are, they, they are worth nothing to Allah Azawajal. Yet he gives freely to the mushrik who associates partners with him in worship day and night. He gives to him from the abundance of the world. And to the kafir likewise, the one who is a denier, a jahid, the one who is arrogant, and he, he, he denies, he gives to him. This is al-ata wal-mana'. And likewise, Allah he withholds, he prevents, he will prevent from a believer. He will withhold from a believer, not give him wealth or sustenance. Why? Because this is a trial for the believer. As for the disbeliever, for the mushrik, one who was chosen misguidance, he opens the doors for him and leaves him in his you know, enjoyment and pastime. Because these things I don't mean are not worth anything to Allah Azza wa Jal. He doesn't lose anything from his dominion that a mushrik or a kafir should, you know, enjoy these types of things. And likewise, al qabd wal basta. Al qabd is to restrict, to limit. So Allah Azza wa Jal might restrict the risk of an individual, 
because that might be better for him. Or he might enlarge and increase the provision of someone. And that could be a trial for him, a tribulation for him. So all of these things, if you look at all of these qualities that we, that we are mentioning in these texts, Allah creates. Allah is the creator. He's created all of this combination of all of the, these things that you see, the sun, the alternation of the night and the day, the air, the, the, the gases, the rain, everything that works together for the creation of rizq. He is the creator of all of that. And then he is the one who brings about harm or brings about benefit. He gives life, takes life. And then he gives and he withholds and he restricts and he enlargens. Look at all of these qualities together. Who is the owner of all of these? It is Allah Azawajal. It is only Allah Azawajal. And so therefore, what does all of this show? The Shaykh says that all of this now, what, what, what should we take from this? We take from this that we develop and have a feeling of extreme need from Allah Azawajal. That we are the ones who are needy for every single thing in the large affairs and in the small affairs. And the Salaf understanding all of these issues that we mentioned because these were were ingrained into their hearts that Allah is Ar-Razzaq, Dhul-Quwwatil Mateen, that He is the one who controls benefit and harm and life and death, and that He gives and withholds and restricts and enlargens, ingrained within them to such a degree that even if they were in need of a shoelace or a strap to mend their sandals, they would ask Allah for it. Even the smallest, minuscule, minute thing, they would ask Allah for it because they know that ultimately all of these things come from Allah Azza wa Jal. So, the Shaykh says that even the Salaf, they used to request from Allah even the, the, the strap that had broken from their sandal or from their shoe. So do not be miserly in anything of your dua. Do not be a miser. Do not, so in other words, meaning, that every large thing and every small thing, do not, do not be miserly in your dua. Make dua to Allah Azawajal. Why? Because this is ibadah. Just asking Allah for something. Even in the affair of the dunya. We're not speaking about the deen now. Even in the affair of the dunya. From your rizq, from your needs. Then that itself is worship of Allah Azawajal. And so this dua that you make, when you make this dua from any large, for any large or small thing, what are you doing? You are manifesting certain qualities. You are showing and displaying. Number one, your iftiqar, that you are in need of Allah Azawajal, that you are poor and needy in front of Allah Azawajal. Just by making a dua for any material thing that you need. And secondly, your ajaz, that you are incapable you are in need of Allah first of all. And secondly, you are incapable. And Allah is not incapable. You are the servant. You are the slave. And Allah is the Lord. Allah is the master. You are the one who is asking and in need. And Allah is the provider and the giver. You are manifesting this quality or these qualities. When you make this dua. Likewise, you are manifesting your jahl. Your ignorance. Because Allah knows everything about you. And your needs. What is before you. What is ahead of you. What is behind you. What will harm you? What will benefit you? Allah is the knower of all things of what is within this creation. And you only have limited knowledge. You do not know all of the things that are beneficial for you or harmful for you. You do not know what's going to happen to you tomorrow 
or the day after, and so on and so forth. So because of that, when you make dua to Allah, this is an acknowledgement of your jahl, of your ignorance, of your own affairs, of, the, of what is beneficial and harmful for you. And you are ascribing perfect knowledge to Allah And likewise, your da'af, your weakness, you are manifesting your weakness. You are a weak human who Allah has created weak, hasty, impetuous, and all these other qualities that, that are part and parcel, dhulm uh, and jahl and so on and so forth. So you are weak. And Allah is the powerful, the free of all need, the free of all wants. And so when you make dua for anything, large or small, you are manifesting all of these acts of worship. And the asking itself is an act of worship. So you are in front of the Lord of the heavens and the earth, in whose hand is every single thing, all of this now is a tremendous amount of ubudiyah. You are displaying tremendous servitude to Allah Azza wa Jal. So this su'al, just this su'al, just this asking of Allah Azza wa Jal, alongside tadallul, lowering yourself, humbling yourself, al-khudu' being submissive, and showing al-iftiqar Allah, showing your need in front of Allah Azza wa Jal, all of this is a tremendous and lofty station to be in. It is a manzila that you have of ubudiyah. Ubudiyah is a tremendous situation. Why? Because Allah He names His prophets and messengers as His slaves. The messenger of Allah is the Abdullah. This is the loftiest of titles to be an Abd of Allah. Abdullah, one who is in servitude to Allah. So to possess this quality of ubudiyah, it brings you the loftiest of stations, the loftiest of stations that you can have. So when Allah He intends goodness for His servant, you know that Allah has intended good for you when you find yourself standing in front of Allah in humility, humbling yourself, recognizing your weakness and all of these qualities that we mentioned, iftiqar, your ajz, your jahl, your da'af, you acknowledge all of these things and you stand humble in front of Allah and you raise your hands and you ask Him a need from the needs of the world, then all of this is a sign that Allah has intended good for you. That Allah has guided you to something that is good and beneficial to you. And so when you ask Him for His aid, for His guidance, for His sustenance, then this is something that Allah He loves. He is pleased that His servant should do these affairs, that He is asked. In fact, we see that Allah has commanded in the Quran that He is to be asked. And He belittles the one who does not ask Allah and does not find himself in this state and condition of being, you know, of feeling in need and feeling weak and feeling incapable. Any person who does not find himself in that situation and thereby ask Allah, this is criticized and condemned in the Quran. The Shaykh brings the ayah, وَقَالَ رَبُّكُمْ اُدْعُونِي وَقَالَ رَبُّكُمْ اُدْعُونِي أَسْتَجِبْ لَكُمْ And your Lord has decreed or has commanded, call upon me and I shall respond to you. إِنَّ الَّذِينَ يَسْتَكْبِرُونَ عَنْ عِبَادَتِي To the end of the ayah, indeed those who are arrogant away from my worship, soon shall they enter into into hellfire to the end of the ayah. So here 
a person who turns away from those things that we have mentioned, then, and does not call upon Allah, invoke Allah, then this person has been rebuked in this severe manner. And this is because dua itself is ibadah. وَقَالَ رَبُّكُمْ ud'uni. He said, ud'uni. Invoke me. Why? Because dua itself is ibadah. For all of the reasons that we mentioned, that when you make dua, look at all of these feelings that are present in your heart. And it is from the greatest of the stations of Ubudiyya. So dua is asking of Allah Azawajal. And so we ask Allah Azawajal of rizq. And so this is our need for Allah in terms of the worldly affairs. And likewise for al-hidayah. Al-hidayah and rizq. Al-hidayah, it is clear. Ibn al-Qayyim, rahimahullahu ta'ala, he has a beautiful statement at the beginning of uh, his, his work, uh, Al-Madarij, <coughs> Madarij al-Salikin, where he speaks about the Fatiha and how we say in every rak'ah, Ihdina sirat al-mustaqim, or Allah guide us to the straight path. And he says there is a question that is asked, that if we are already guided, how can we ask for more guidance? If we are already on the path, how then can we ask Allah for guidance? And so Ibn al-Qayyim, he responds to this question, or to this objection. And he says, and he gives uh, uh, an, an example or an explanation along the following lines. Along the following lines. You can return back to the text. It's at the beginning of uh, Al-Madarij, in the opening uh, few pages. So, along the following line, he says, basically, if you take any, any Muslim, and you look at how much he knows of knowledge, compared to what he doesn't know of knowledge, then you'll find that he only has a small percentage of this much knowledge. Right? And his ignorance is tremendous. So first of all, he is in need of guidance to that which he doesn't know of the truth. Why? Because what he knows of the truth is only minuscule. So first, so he's the first level of guidance that he's in need of. Right? Because of his jahal. Secondly, that so so now let's say a person only has two percent of the knowledge of all of the knowledge in the deen and that's being generous let's say one percent then from that one percent how much of that knowledge does he actually have an irada to act upon it right so all of us have a lot of knowledge that we have up here so from the sum of that knowledge how much of that knowledge do we actually have a will and an irada to want to act upon it? Right? So now that 1% of what we know, uh, if we now include the irada where we actually have a desire to act upon it, now this shaves off a large amount of that now. So that 1% all of a sudden now becomes a tenth of a percent. Right? Because we have more knowledge than what we have the desire to act upon. This is general for pretty much all, all people except for the one whom Allah wills from you know, the prophets and the righteous and other and them to, who, to whom he gives tawfiq. So now from that which we actually have the irada to want to act upon it, how much of it do we actually manage to act upon? That's something else. Having the irada is one thing but actually being guided to doing it is something else. So now from that, uh, what did we say? We said uh, 1% and then a tenth of that. And now from that tenth, let's say that, you know, we only managed to do, uh, being generous, let's say, half of that. 
So now we are on uh, 0 0.1, 0 0.0, 0 0.1, 0.05% of what we actually managed to act upon. And then from what we act upon from that 0.05%, how much of that are we actually sincere to Allah Is it done with ikhlas? And is it done upon correctness, upon the sunnah? And then that shaves off another large amount, right? So look at that. This means that in every moment and in every time, we are in need of tremendous guidance from Allah And also this is because guidance is of two types. There is the guidance of Al-Hidayah wal-Irshad, which is the, 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 hidayah, the, the guidance of Al-Irshad, the guidance of actually being pointed to the truth, to be shown the truth. That's one type of guidance. And this is something that Allah has established by, by way of His prophets and His messengers and the book and the sunnah. We've been shown what is the actual guidance. This is Hidayatul Irshad wa Dilala. And then there is the guidance of actual, of, of being successful in following it. This is now at tawfiq being granted success. This is something else, and this is what we are seeking when we ask Allah for guidance. We are asking Allah for guidance, for knowledge of the guidance, and success in following the guidance as well. So when you look at, look at it from this point of view, you see that this dua, this supplication that we make in the Fatiha, what a tremendous dua, what a tremendous supplication it actually is because of our tremendous need for guidance at every moment uh, of, of, of our lives. So this brings us to an end to the second and third portions of the hadith. The first portion related to dhulm, which is haram. Allah made it haram upon himself and he made it haram upon the servants. The second is seeking guidance from Allah in the affairs of the deen. And the third is seeking rizq from Allah and seek guidance likewise and assistance in the worldly affairs. This now leads us to the fourth affair. And this is the statement of Allah in the hadith, Ya ibadi, kullukum arin illa man kasawtuh. فَاسْتَكْسُونِي أُقْسُكُمْ O my servants, all of you are naked, you are unclothed, except the one whom I have clothed. So seek your clothing from me, and I shall clothe you. So, the Shaykh says about this, Hafizullah, that we ask Allah for every single thing. So long as it, not, as it is not ithm, as it is not something which entails a sin, or the cutting of ties. So in other words, it is permitted for us to ask for anything from Allah As long as it is not something which entails sin, or it does not entail, or it is not the cutting of ties. Aside from that, then we can ask Allah for anything. And Allah has promised to respond as he mentioned in many of the texts that, we, that, that, that are found in the Qur'an. And likewise from the prophetic statements likewise. So the Shaykh says from this what we take is that we display our need in front of Allah and we request from him everything that we need in this life of ours. Whether in this life or whether in the hereafter. And so we are fuqara, we are needy. Why? Because of the affairs we mentioned earlier. 
We do not control harm, benefit, uh, death, life, resurrection, sustenance, clothing, food. Why? Because all of the ways and means and mechanisms by which these things come to us, they are in the control of Allah Azza wa Jal. He controls everything, all of the ways and means by which these affairs come to us. So therefore, uh, this is from Allah's fadl, His favor, His bounty, His generosity. So let us ask Him. And when we ask from Allah Azawajal, Allah will feed you. Allah will give to you. Allah will provide for you. And this is how a person should be. He should manifest this ubudhiya to Allah. Now a person sometimes might ask, sometimes a person, he might, you know, in his situation, when he reflects in his situation, why am I uh, poor? Why am I needy? Why am I wanting in certain affairs? Why do I not have this? Why do I not have that? Many people pass through these states and conditions, these feelings. And if they just stopped and reflect, then perhaps they are not asking Allah Azza wa Perhaps they are not displaying their ubudiyah to Allah Azza along the lines that we've mentioned. Allah loves that He's asked and He shall give to you. And maybe you are not doing that. Maybe you are not displaying your ubudiyah to Allah along the lines that, 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 that are... That are indicated by way of this hadith and perhaps you're not being given so this is something that the shaykh is emphasizing again this issue of ubudiyah to Allah and Allah gives those who worship him in this manner and manifest the, these qualities then the shaykh goes on to mention something very important we can finish our lesson with a discussion of this point and this now relates to asking from the creation Asking the makhluqeen, those who are created. We've spoken now in detail about asking the creator, the khaliq, the one who is the razzaq, the one who is dhul quwwatil mateen, the creator, the provider, the possessor of immense strength. In contrast to this, then the shaykh says, with respect to asking the creation, he says, لِأَنَّ الْإِسْلَامِ يُرِيدُ مِنْكَ أَنْ تَكُونَ عَزِيزًا وَلِلَّهِ الْعِزَّةِ وَلِرَسُولِهِ وَلِلْمُؤْمِنِينَ He says, as for asking the creation, do not ask anything the creation, anyone from the creation. Do not ask them for anything. Because Islam wants you to be an honorable person. He wants you to be a person who is lofty and honorable, with dignity and respect. Mm-hmm. And in the Quran we read, وَلِلَّهِ الْعِزَّةِ to Allah belongs al-izzah, meaning might and honor, and to his messenger and to the believers. And this is actually in Suratul Munafiqun, Suratul Munafiqin, Surah, uh, the chapter on the hypocrites, uh, surah, surah number 63, verse number 8. And so do not acknowledge ubudiyah except to Allah. Do not manifest your neediness and your poverty and your incapacity and your and so on and so forth, the qualities that we mentioned before. Do not manifest and display those qualities except to Allah Azza not to any of the creation. So he says that don't humble and lower yourself and degrade yourself to any of the creation. And we shouldn't confuse this, what we are speaking of, because we are speaking about something specific here. That you degrade and lower yourself by manifesting your need for the creation, by asking the creation for needs. This should not be confused by being humble in ways that Allah has commanded you to be humble. For example, in Surah Al-Isra, 
we see that Allah Zawajal, He commands, وَخْفِدْ لَهُمَا جِنَاحَ الظُّلِّ مِنَ الرَّحْمَةِ Speaking about the parents, that lower the wing of humility, the wing of humility of mercy, meaning to your parents. So being humble and lowering yourself, this is not the, the, the type of degrading uh, quality that is con- condemned or prohibited. We're not speaking about this. Rather, this is something that Allah commands. It is from obedience to Him, that you are humble, that you are merciful, that you are modest in front of your parents, because this is something that is desirable. And likewise, as he says, Likewise, when you show, when you are humble to a teacher or to the leader of the Muslims, the Waliul Amr, and all these other such things, all of this, this is from the Bab of Adab and Akhlaq. This is to do with etiquette and manners. Right? We are not speaking about this. This is not, these affairs are not the Ibadah or Budiyya. Right? These are. Uh, these are, these are not affairs which constitute the ibadah which is requested from, from a servant. So we must distinguish between this and between that. Between when you lower and degrade yourself by asking other people. And Allah does not want you to do this. He does not want you to do this. And this is prohibited in fact. And there are only a number of situations in which there is an exception to this prohibition. And this is in the hal of ad-durura, of absolute necessity. And then the Shaykh mentions a beautiful, a nice hadith from Sahih Muslim, which clarifies this affair. And this is a hadith in which the messenger of Allah he said to Qabisa, one of the companions, Qabisa al-Hilali, radiallahu anhu, he said, Ya Qabisa, إِنَّ الْمَسْأَلَ لَا تَحِلُّ إِلَّا لِأَحَدِ ثَلَاثَةِ O Qabisa, indeed asking, is not lawful except for one of three. Except for one of three. رَجُلٌ تَحَمَّلَ حَمَالَةً فَحَلَّتْ لَهُ الْمَسْأَلَ حَتَّى يُصِيبَهَا ثُمَّ يُمْسِكَ So the first of those people is a man who undertook upon himself a responsibility of reconciling between two parties. Like, so for example, two tribes have a dispute and a war, uh, there's a war, and some people get killed. So in the midst of all of this, an individual will take the responsibility of wanting to put an end to this fitna and reconcile, and he wants to raise some money to basically make up for whatever, you know, the blood money and whatever else is needed to remove this fitna and to stop the fighting and whatever else and to reconcile. So this person now goes out and he basically asks people to contribute. Right? This is one exception. Then the hadith continues. وَرَجُلٌ أَسَابَتْهُ جَائِحَةِ إِجْتَاحَتْ مَالَهُ فَحَلَّتْ لَهُ الْمَسْأَلَةِ حَتَّى يُصِيبَ قِوَامًا مِنْ عِيشِ أَوْ قَالَ سِدَادًا مِنْ عِيشِ the second one is a man <clears throat> to whom some sort of calamity uh, has struck and his wealth then becomes destroyed. It is permissible for him to ask until he's now able to find the means to subsist again. Until he finds that his livelihood is now established again. So for example, to explain this part, maybe there is a flood. 
maybe a building collapses, maybe there's some sort of calamity. This man has lost his entire house, he's lost all his provisions, right? He's basically destitute. This man can now go and he can ask the people. And he can continue asking up until he now is able, uh, he is able to, uh, you know, receive his sustenance and he's able to establish his livelihood. So this is now a second exception. This is not considered blameworthy asking. It is permissible to do so. The third one, وَرَجِلٌ أَسَابَتْهُ فَاقَةٌ حَتَّى يَقُومَ ثَلَاثَةٌ مِنْ ذَوِي الْحِجَاءِ مِنْ قَوْمِهِ لَقَدْ أَسَابَتْ فُلَانًا فَاقَةٌ فَحَلَّتْ لَهُ الْمَسْأَلَةِ حَتَّى يُسُوبَ حَتَّى يُسِيبَ قِوَامًا مِنْ عِيشٍ أَوْ قَالَ سِدَادًا مِنْ عِيشٍ فَمَا سِوَاهُنَّ مِنَ الْمَسْأَلَةِ يَا قَبِيسَةٌ سُحْتًا يَأْكُلُهَا صَاحِبُهَا سُحْتًا He said as for the third, it is a man to whom poverty has struck. And then, three other people from his people, I mean from his tribe, from his location, who are people who understand and know from his people, they say that so-and-so person has been afflicted with poverty. So now three people have to recognize and verify and establish that indeed this person is in poverty. Right? So person who's been struck with poverty, and then three people come, and they say, so-and-so, Falan, he's suffering from poverty. Then, then he may ask, it is lawful for him to ask, until he again regains, and is able to establish his livelihood. And whatever is besides them, besides these three of asking, O Qabisa, it is suhd, suhd. It is like uh, something that is ill-gotten. It is ill-gotten, it is taken in falsehood, it is devoured in falsehood. And the person who eats it, then is eating from falsehood. Right? So look at this. So the Sheikh then goes on to explain the hadith along the lines that we mentioned, each of the three. And so look at all of this, um, what it indicates, that anything besides these, these three situations is a type of suhat, it is a type of like uh, deceptive and uh, a fraudulent type of... Uh, you know, asking, and why? Because he now a person is manifesting iftiqar to other than Allah, and he's lowering his soul, is making idlal of the nafs and dhulm of the nafs. He's oppressing himself, and he's making iftiqar to other than Allah, and he falls into a type or a manifestation of shirk, not the major shirk, but a minor type of shirk, wherein the heart becomes attached to other than Allah in an unhealthy manner, right? So this is a type of minor shirk. From the minor shirk, for example, is the one we see in the hadith, may the worshipper of the dinar be wretched, may the worshipper of the dirham be wretched, may the worshipper of the certain sort of type of cloth, the, the silk or the, you know, be wretched. This is not, this is, this is not worship, which is major shirk, but what, uh, as the scholars explain, this is when, the heart becomes attached to material things. This now enters into a type of shirk, which is a minor shirk. So similarly here, when a person, he comes out of the ubudiyah of Allah and then lowers himself and degrades himself by asking for other people, then this now is a type of shirk. Why? Because he's manifested iftiqar to other than Allah. Now this is the angle for, uh, as to why it is a type of minor shirk. Whereas this type of iftiqar should only be in front of Allah Azza wa Jal. And it is only in the time of durura, absolute necessity. 
as we've already clarified in what has preceded. So after all of this, the Sheikh says, let us therefore, our, our asking, our iftiqar, our feeling of neediness, our, all of our needs, all of our requests, should only be to Allah who is Al-Ahad, As-Samad. When we say the surah, قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدْ Say Allah, He is, say He is Allah the One, uh, and He is uh, As-Samad. These names, we should understand the meaning of these names. What is As-Samad? As-Samad, one of the meanings of As-Samad, is the one to whom all of the creatures and all of the servants turn to for their needs. This is the meaning of As-Samad. He is the self-sustaining one. Meaning the one who is not in need of anyone else, yet everyone else is in need of him. This is the meaning of As-Samad. The one to whom all the creatures turn to, yet he is in need of no creature. So we should understand this, <clears throat> and this should be an aqidah that is deeply embedded in ourselves and in our children. We should teach this aqidah to our children to be like this, and to not to lower themselves and degrade themselves by asking from other people, but ask from Allah and then take the ways and means, and make the wakul. And so a person should, uh, the shaykh says, وَمَا الْأَسَفْ الشَّدِيدِ You see from the people are those who ask for their sustenance from other than Allah, and not only other than Allah, from the dead, let alone the living. Look at how degrading this is. Forget ubudiyah to a created thing, to a created living thing. But you are making ubudiyah to a dead, someone that is dead, and who is even more severely uh, unable in controlling life and death and benefit and harm and sustenance, let alone the living person. At least even the living person, he has some ability and means, but the dead person has none whatsoever. So, so with great regret, the Sheikh says, we see that there are people who are present today who you know, re request their... A removal of harm and sustenance from other than Allah until even the dead. And this is clear, manifest guidance. And so then the Shaykh finishes by telling us what types of things that we should be asking Allah for in light of all of what we mentioned. So the Shaykh says, first of all, ask from Allah that He teaches you. Ask Allah, ask Allah that He teaches you. And secondly, that he provides for you beneficial knowledge and righteous action. Ask Allah for al-ilmun nafi' wal-amr salih. Beneficial knowledge and righteous action. Ask him for that. And ask him, make dua to him and ask him to grant you success in ibadah, al-ibadah, and at-taqwa and ikhlas. Ask him for these things. O oh Allah, Grant me success in your worship and in establishing taqwa and in sincerity in my actions. And there are supplications in the Quran and the Sunnah which address these affairs. Likewise, you ask Allah to grant you success in, um, in, in, in goodness, in khair and uprightness, that you are upright and that you are upon goodness. And ask him that he gives you sustenance in the worldly sense, your rizq, and that he grants you health, that, you gives, that he gives you afiyah, meaning safety and, and well-being. You ask him for those things. And you ask Allah to protect you from 
disobedience and sins. That you fall into disobedience and sins. And you ask Allah for everything that you need, whether in for your life, for your worldly life, or for the affairs of your religion. So these are the five or six things that you should ask from Allah We'll mention them again. First, you're asking for beneficial knowledge and righteous action. And then that you ask him, he gives you success in his worship, in ibadah, and taqwa, and ikhlas, in sincerity. And then that he keeps you upon uprightness. And then in terms of your worldly affairs, that he gives you rizq, lawful, halal, tayyib, pure, wholesome rizq, and afiyah, which is health and well-being, asking for these affairs. And likewise, that he protects you from sin and disobedience. Seek refuge in Allah from, his, from dis- disobeying him and from being sinful. And ask Allah after that for everything that you may be in need of for your worldly affairs and for the affairs of the, of, of, of the deen and the affairs of the hereafter. And within the Quran and the Sunnah and the various other ayah, the supplications for the morning and the evening, you will find many supplications that comprehensively include all of these things. So you call you, you make dua in the morning and the evening with those type of supplications, and this now you will be acting upon you will be acting upon what we have discussed uh, in this lesson of these great meanings within this hadith Qudsi. So we'll we'll conclude at that point there, inshallah ta'ala, and we'll continue with uh, the point number five in the hadith in the next lesson. I will conclude there. Walhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen, wa sallallahu ala nabina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Assalamu alaikum. This other question is he's uh, asking. The is justified asking uh, their so called righteous by saying, as soon as the Sahaba instituted, ask the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam to do the work for them for Jannah. The scholars have answered this uh, question uh, for those who might not have heard. Walaikum salam first of all uh, That uh, The sahab used to ask the messenger of Allah To make dua for him So how does that fit in with In light of what we have uh, mentioned So it, to answer it in, in a nutshell In general From what the scholars mention Is And this is something that Shaykh Al-Islam Ibn Taymiyyah mentions as well He discusses this particular point as well And in general A person It is from the perfection of his tawheed that he make dua to Allah himself for his needs, right? And that he not really ask someone else to make dua for him. However, there is a form and a manifestation of, of, of when a person makes another, when a person asks another person to make dua for him, which is that I'm going to ask you to make dua for me because I am being benevolent to you. Because I am asking you to do an act of obedience to Allah because I want you to be rewarded for it. So it's for your benefit. Do you understand? So because I'm inviting you to do something that is goodness, for which you shall benefit, then this is ihsan from me to you. So do you understand the difference between that and between... When a person says, Akhi, you know, uh, I, I have difficulties and problems, and please, please, please make dua for me. Can you see the difference between that and between this? There's a difference between the two. 
in in this in this second in this situation a person is kind of indicating a lack of complete independent reliance upon Allah and he's turning to some of the permissible ways and means even though that's permissible do you understand to ask someone to make dua for you is permissible right but it is better and more perfect for a person's tawheed to ask Allah with the full attachment of his heart right Similar to that hadith about the 70,000 and the man, the the, the, the Muslim described them that they do not, you know, ask others to do ruqya upon them, nor do they uh, ask for uh, the the, the, the cauterization and so on and so forth, right? Even though those things, they they, they they are permissible, right? But a person leaves them even though they are permissible ways and means, and he leaves them out of the perfection of his tawakkal in Allah Azza wa Right? So it's a similar type of thing. So, the, so this is how we understand those types of scenarios where a person asks other than uh, someone else to make dua for him. Right? It is either it is permissible deficiency, or in the case that you mentioned. Uh, it is from that angle of intending benevolence for that person in that he does something good and that he's rewarded for that good and that you enjoined upon him something that is good and beneficial for him rather than actually being in need of him. Do you understand? Right? It's actually benevolence to him rather than being in need of him. Yeah. So that explanation there is something that Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah he uh, has discussed in... Uh, it's a book, I think, on Al-Wasita, Bain Al-Haqi Wal-Khalq, right? About asking and things like that, and the ways and means and dua and things like that. He discussed it in that in that in that, in that book, and that's the gist of the answer. They do what? Sorry, they go to. Like you just said a minute ago. Yeah. The companion said to the prophet. Yeah. 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 So the people that get fear and do dua, for example, that's acceptable. Yeah. Well, we have to understand that what we are speaking about is people who've been nurtured upon Tawheed and they understand that Allah is the one who answers and fulfills all the needs and that in general an individual his heart should be attached only to Allah and at times it's permissible for him to go and ask another person to make dua for him yeah so whereas these kind of people that we are discussing who are attached to peers and they go to peers and you know uh they ask them for their needs. Yeah, but they're doing the same thing. They're doing the wild up, so not from them, but from just like from God, isn't it? Just, okay, okay, okay. So but you know, the same scenario, no, if if they're doing, if if some one of these people goes and says, oh, so and so, he goes to the Imam of the mosque and says, make dua for me. There's nothing wrong with that. For example, yeah. I can tell you, come yeah. to my house, do dua, for example. No, no. So this is this is now different. Now we see. This is the different now is how is the dua done? Do you understand? Right. So, so. The, what what these people do yeah. in the way that the act of worship is done yeah. they do not follow the guidance of the messenger right so they do it 
at certain times or with certain forms or with certain means, all of the, the, the way that it's done is not in accordance with the guidance of the Messenger of Allah. So for example, they will say, come to my house and I'll feed you some food on a Thursday. Bring uh, 10 of the people, we'll read the Quran and make dua. Okay? This whole thing now, this is an innovation. Right? Huh? That's wrong. Yeah, that's not. That's not correct. This is this. This is a bid'ah in the religion. Not. It's not. Nobody has said that you cannot do du'a. I'm not saying. I'm not saying du'a is an innovation. I'm saying that the way that you do an act of worship has to be in accordance with the 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 how the messenger was described. So no one is saying that you can't do du'a. Right. Let me give you a good example. There was a man who uh, after the Salatul Fajr he stood up and he performed two rak'ahs. So one of the companions and this companion's name uh, it was either I forgot, I forgot his name it was um, I forgot his name but uh, the, 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 the companion basically he re- re- rebuked him and reprimanded him. He said what are you doing? And then the man said will Allah punish me for praying? Is Allah going to punish me for praying? And so the companion said, Allah is not going to punish you for praying, but He will punish you for opposing the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah. Do you understand? Yeah? So, so what I'm saying is that an act of worship has to be done in the same way that the Prophet did it. Right? So, for example, if I. Let me give you an example. Can you pray Maghrib after Dhuhr? Yeah. What I'm explaining is that when you do an act of worship, in all of its details, it, have to be, it has to be agree with the sunnah. Right? So, so if, if someone came and said, I'm going to pray four rakahs for Maghrib, we can't accept this from him. Yeah? If someone prays five rakahs for Maghrib, five rakahs yeah. when it's three, yeah. Well, you can't do five because what's the description? It's three. Yeah. But this person might say, "Is Allah going to punish me for praying for praying rakahs?" Yeah. You're going to say to him, "No, Allah's not going to punish you yeah. for praying rakahs, yeah. but He's going to punish you for opposing what the Messenger taught us." Yeah. yeah. So, so if someone comes and he says, uh, "Come to my house on a Thursday, and let's bring ten people. I'll feed you food, and you read the Surah Yasin ten times, and then, O oh, Imam, O oh, Peer, make dua for me." All of these details now, we've not be. This is this is a bid'ah to do it like this. Dua is not a bid'ah. Reciting Quran is not a bid'ah, right? And feeding food is not a bid'ah. All of these things, one by one, individually, they are acts of worship. Allah will reward you for doing them, right? But putting them all together in this form and this description is not something that Allah has allowed or commanded. Rather, this is. This is now introducing new things into the religion and changing the religion of Islam by doing things in ways that the messenger and his companions never ever did them. Right? You can feed food to anybody at any time. At any time. Yeah. You can also... Um, so, so the point, coming back to your question, if a person whom you're describing goes to his local mosque and goes to his imam and says, Ya imam, make dua for me. Nothing wrong with that at all. Nothing, nothing. Sorry? 
somebody's passed away. Yeah, family. nothing wrong with it. Like you, I can you can come to me and say, "Achi, will you make dua for my father who passed away last week?" Yeah. I'll say, "Yes, of course, I'll make dua for your father who passed away last week." Okay. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Or so all of this is permissible. You can do that. Yeah. So I'm not speaking about this, yeah. right? So so this is permissible, and. If someone does this from any of these other, other masajid, this is fine, no problem. Right? But what we are saying is in general that when you look at what is the creed, what is the aqidah that some of these mosques are upon, like the Sufis and the Brailwis and things like that, they actually tell their people it's okay for you to either go to the grave and ask that person directly, or you can be in your house and say, Ya Abdul Qadir al Jilani, Madad, right? Which is what they do. This is haram, this is shirk with Allah. Yeah. This, no. Okay, so this, this is now where we have to understand how shaitan misleads people in small steps. No, no. People work step by shaitan takes you step by step over time until you know you, you actually fall into worshipping the dead people. So first of all, people they'll start beautifying the graves That's and building. Yeah, yeah. Then they'll start going to the grave and spending time there and making dua to Allah, not the grave, but to Allah. Yeah. Then Shaitan makes them believe that when I make dua at the grave, it's better than making dua in my house. Yeah. Right. Well, listen, listen to what I'm saying to you. Yeah. So then, some people will start believing. Every time I go to the grave and I make dua there, it's better and Allah will more likely accept it if I do it at the grave than if I do it at home, right? So Shaitan puts this idea into the head. Then this will continue, right? Then after some time, that person will think, you know what? Let me ask Allah. I'll ask him. Look, Allah, because of this man, because of the status of this man. Give me such and such, you know, he'll, he'll, make, he'll make dua through the righteous man. Yeah, then he'll do that for a while. Then sometime later, the people will think, okay, you know what, maybe we can just ask this person. He's in the bazaar. Let me ask him. Oh, so and so, you make dua to Allah for me. Yeah, yeah, that's, what's, that's what happened. Yeah, definitely. You make dua to Allah for me. So they go and say, oh, so and so, call upon Allah and make, ask him for my needs. Then they'll do that for a short while. Then after this becomes a practice amongst them, then eventually they will start saying, they will start asking that person for the needs directly. Right? This whole process won't happen like in a week or two weeks or a year or whatever. It takes generations before this type of misguidance uh, appears among Muslims. And this is what you see. You go to Pakistan, you go to India, you go to all these countries. That's what they're doing. In Egypt, two million people travel from Egypt all across Egypt, to a city called Tanta. In that city called Tanta, there's a grave of an individual called Ahmad al-Badawi. They go to that grave, and they go there and they ask him to cure their illnesses. And they ask him for offspring, because they can't have children, ask him for offspring. They go for... They commit shirk. This is shirk of Allah. So this is, this is something that is the reality in, this, in our Muslim nation. So what I'm, what I'm saying to you is that if in these mosques, an average person just goes to his imam and says, Ya imam, make dua for me, for my father, for this, for my child, whatever. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Well, Nothing wrong with that at all. Yeah. 
I know what he says going to be as well wrong, but if they're just asking for somebody who's got more knowledge, yeah. just tell them I just do a bit of khatam. I don't know if that, I don't know if no. that's allowed. No, then those details, that, then the, all this khatam and stuff is, is in innovation. Right. It's right. not in the Quran. It's not in the Quran. The companions never used to do this. Never used to do this. You can make dua at any time. You can make dua sitting, standing, lying in your home, outside the home, as you're walking. Right? There are some things which are left open and, and unrestricted. Right? So we can't restrict them at, at certain times. So, um, so for an act of worship, he has to agree with the sunnah. Right? That's why the prayers are at fixed times. You're, if you prayed Maghrib after Dhuhr, it's not acceptable to Allah. Right? Likewise, if you prayed five rakahs for Maghrib, it's not acceptable to Allah. If you fasted in other than Ramadan, you can only fast in Ramadan. So acts of worship have time restricted to them. Yeah, Acts of worship have number tied to them as well. Likewise, you can only do Hajj in Mecca yeah, and you yeah. can't do you can't do Tawaf anywhere else. No, no, no. So acts of worship have place tied to them as well. Yeah. Likewise, when you sacrifice for uh, Eid al-Adha, it's only certain types of animals. You can't sacrifice a chicken or a rat or some or some you know other animal. It has to be a specific type, right? So some acts of worship have a specific type attached to them as well. And likewise, acts of worship have a description, a form that you have to stick to, right? So whenever you do any act of ibadah, it has to agree with the sunnah from all of these different angles, right? So we're not saying that what these people are doing of dua is wrong. We're saying that the way in which they are doing it is not in agreement with the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah. And for this, they just need teaching. Yeah? Yeah. Okay, we'll stop there, inshallah. We'll continue uh, the lesson in two weeks' time, inshallah.